You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Today on the show, we're bringing on Rocky Lalvani from Richer Soul, and we're going to be exploring, to some degree, a blend of multi-generational wealth building, millionaire next door, and an immigrant path to financial independence. And to help me with this, I have my co-host, Brad, here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan. I'm doing quite well. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. We've had the good fortune of meeting Rocky a couple of times, and just an incredibly interesting and insightful guy. And yeah, his story is remarkable. So can't wait to bring him to the Chooseify community. And with that, Rocky, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. So Rocky, in one of our early conversations, you mentioned to me that you are the prototypical millionaire next door. And I'm a huge fan of the late Dr. Thomas Stanley, who wrote the book, The Millionaire Next Door. And I'm curious for you, what does that mean? What is your origin story? And when did you become interested in personal finance? I'm an immigrant to the United States. My parents came here when I was two years old. And just so you kind of get time frames. It was 1968. My parents were in their early 40s, so I was born kind of late, and it was their second time starting over in life. And basically, they were coming here to, uh, you know, the streets are paved with gold. It's the American dream. Let's go do this. So it was my parents, myself, my grandfather. They immigrated here. My dad had a brother who had already been here for a couple of years, and my mom had a sister who had been here for a couple of years already. So they had a little bit of family to kind of get them settled and started. The other thing is back in those days, you were not allowed to take money out of India. So they pretty much showed up here with $25 and they started building the American dream. And they had a lot of other friends and not so much family, but friends who had grown up with them who had also started on this this American dream and came here. So when I was young, I literally watched people who started off living in a one-bedroom apartment on the wrong side of the tracks. And within a very short period of time, they kind of moved up the financial ladder. I, I remember when I was young, like every year we would move to a nicer apartment and to a nicer place. And so from that standpoint, it was just it was awesome to watch that success is possible and watch people building success. And in the Indian culture, we just talk about money. So it was just natural to hear money conversations all the time of how much did you pay for that car? How much do you make? And all of those types of conversations. So it was really neat to be able to see that as I was growing up. Rocky, you said that was their second time starting over in life. That piqued my curiosity. Tell me more about that and also their decision to come to the U.S. We're originally from northern India, our family history. And back during World War II, there was the separation which occurred, which created Pakistan, which carved it out of India. And our parents were originally from that part of India. And so they basically had to leave. And they left. Uh, it was pretty much, they were probably in their late teens, early twenties. 
and they relocated to Bombay at that point. And they basically left everything behind and they started over in life, just as most of our relatives and the rest of our family did. And so from like that point, they had 20 years that they had built up a life in India. Actually, my dad, they owned a pharmacy in India. And so they ran a drugstore. And I guess at some point they decided they just wanted more and they wanted to to take that leap. And they just kept trying to immigrate and they did it. So, Rocky, you're describing when your parents are in the U.S. that basically in this one single generation, they went from $25 in their pocket when they got to the U.S. to year over year having tangible success. Like, what does that look like as a little kid? And I guess you described in the Indian culture where you talk about money. Did you talk to your parents about what their lives were like and how they were so really like hell bent on improving their lives? Like, I mean, this is a remarkable story. I'd love to hear more about the interaction between you and your parents. I don't remember specific interactions between myself and my parents, but what kind of happened in the Indian community is we would always be dragged to parties. And so the kids would all be hanging around and the adults would all be talking. I think it was more hearing the adults talking amongst themselves and how they were doing things and how they were figuring out living in America and how they were creating success. That probably is where a lot more of it came from versus direct conversations. And then the other thing that happened is right around the time I was about seven years old, my mom got breast cancer and within a year of her diagnosis, she passed away. So then at that point, my dad became a single father. And if you think about it, you know, this is the early 70s. Being a single dad, it was the middle of a recession. He just kind of made up his mind that I'm always going to be there for my son. And also, I'm going to learn the skills that I need to survive in life in the sense of he learned to cook and he would always teach me skills and I, we would have to do everything ourselves. So, you know, as a kid, you've got to learn to do laundry. If something tears, you've got to learn to sew. If something in the house is, is broken, you have to learn how to fix it. And because of that, I learned amazing skills throughout my life of, cause I, I just, I don't know, somewhere along the way, I just, I guess I saw people always getting more and I saw vast differences in income. So we were probably towards the lower end of the income cycle versus a lot of relatives and friends. So I saw people having tremendous success and I wanted it. And I remember even as a kid, you know, fifth, sixth grade, how do I find a job? How do I make money? How do I start doing this? And I, even at an early age, I had a paper route probably when I was 11, 12 years old. And that really started to teach me how to earn income, how to increase my income, because it was a very much of a tip-based job. So the better you served your customers, the more they paid you. And back in those days, people were much more likely to tell you when you were doing things wrong. Like, hey, don't drive your bicycle across the lawn. Hey, put my paper here. Do these types of things. And I would listen to them and do it. And my tips would go through the roof. So as a little kid, I was flush with money. And I started to enjoy that. And I just kept going down that path. I really want to explore that, that specifically the answers to those questions that you were posing. So I'm a kid, I'm listening to my parents talk about how to make money. I'm trying to figure out what I can adapt into my own life. You have this entrepreneurial bent, you're picking up paper routes, that sort of thing. At various age points in your adolescence, what were the jobs that you were landing on based on kind of people directing you towards how to optimize your childhood and your childhood finances? Was it just the paper route? 
So the paper route, I think, was the start because that was a job you could get at a very young age. At 11 or 12, you could get that job. They still had rules about when you could go to work for somebody. But I actually, what I started doing is back then is when all the digital things started coming out. So you could get like the calculator that was the size of a credit card or a pen with a watch in it. And what I used to do is I used to go into New York City and I would buy things in bulk and I would come back and sell them to my friends. I'd mark everything up 100%. And so I was making even more money doing that. And it's funny because some of the teachers in my school started seeing me do this and they're like, hey, we could do that too. And they literally started catching on and they started going to New York City, <laughs> buying stuff and selling it to all their friends because it was 100% markup on stuff. And you couldn't go wrong because you took orders and then you bought the product or you might just get a couple of them up front to show people. And, and that's how it kind of worked out. And it, it, that was cool. I did get my first job. I think I must've been around 15 and that was washing dishes. And, you know, I always just love to work and do stuff. So I'm like, I'm going to be a dishwasher. I'm going to be the best dishwasher I can be. And it was just fun. And because I showed up and I worked they quickly promoted me. So literally, so from the time I'm 15 to the time I'm probably 19 or 20 within this small restaurant, I went from washing dishes to waitering to learning how to cook and doing line cooking. And then they started to franchise. And so at one point when I was in college, they actually flew me out to Chicago to help them open up one of their new restaurants. That was pretty cool watching people go up, but I also saw the struggle of what it was to run a business like that. And I remember the person who ran that business is like, don't do this, go to college, get a degree. You know, this isn't the best path for you. Hey, Rocky, I have to ask, what were those products that you went into New York City to buy that you marked up for 100%? I'm just so fascinated by this. What a cool story that your teachers saw you doing this and emulated you. Do you recollect what those products were and how you even found them? So I think it was just stuff that kids used. It was like the little electronic calculators, cassette tapes. Back then we actually had cassette tapes. And so if you wanted to go to the store and buy a cassette tape, it might be three or four bucks, but I could go into New York and buy a 10 pack for, I don't know, 10 bucks and then take each cassette and sell it for $2. I used to get video games because that was kind of when the video games were first start started coming out. So they'd run a deal and I would go catch the deal and then I'd split the deal apart and sell the individual video games right. or I'd find someone would have something to sell and I'd buy it and resell it. So it was always just kind of working within that kid's world of what they wanted. My daughter did this at one point. These kids all want a different case for their iPhone every other day, right? You can go on Amazon. You can buy 10 of them for 10 bucks in a pack and then you split them up and you sell them for three, four bucks. You're competing with five below, but kids see it right in front of them. Like, Oh, I want that $3. Yeah, sure. Here you go. <laughs> that's so awesome. I was actually hoping that you would be able to come up with an example for what that looks like now. So that's awesome. And then second, I was just thinking about how you were able to optimize those little things. So with the paper route, uh, you were able to optimize your tips by listening to what the customer wanted by going in and with this first dishwasher job, by just being ready to work your tail off and just kind of rise through the ranks there. So someone looked at you when they needed something but but I'm curious. That's on that's on earning the income and getting presented with those opportunities. Were you able to save it by the time that you were 19? How much of this were you setting aside? When I was young, I was living big. I spent it all. I didn't save any of it at all. 
probably until I got out of college. When I got out of college and I got my first real job, that's when I truly began to save. But through college, it was enjoy the American dream, live large, have fun, spend what you have, but not more. And so I would have tons of cash and I would spend it. I mean, I went through college. It was funny because, you know, everyone else is drinking cheap beer and I'm drinking imported Canadian beer because it was fun and I could do it. But I didn't save hardly at all. But until debt, I got you mentioned that you didn't go into debt. Was, is that true for college as well? Did you have to take out student loans for college? By the time I got to the point where I wanted it was time to go to college, I was burnt out on education and I was really like. I don't want to go to college. I'm sick of learning stuff that doesn't seem applicable to me. But in our culture and in life, it was just expected that you went to college. And so I literally was, you know, I'll just go to the state school. It seems fine. And again, this is where college has gotten ridiculous. Back then, I think tuition for a semester was about $800. So considerably less expensive. Housing and meal plans were probably about the same. And I already knew how to cook. As soon as I got to college, I got a job working both at the college and also at a local pizza place delivering pizzas. So again, I was still making money and I was just making enough money that I was able to pay my housing expenses and my living expenses. And by the second year of college, I became an RA. So I got free housing. We lived in apartments, so there was no meal plan. I knew how to cook and I was making, you know, a hundred and something bucks a week delivering pizzas. And mind you, you know, a hundred and something bucks a week back then is, is three or $400 a week today. So I was just able to pay for everything because college was reasonably priced and I was willing to go out and work and do things. And so it just kind of worked out that way. So no, I got out of college with zero debt. Rocky, do you remember your mindset back in those days when you were living this kind of lavish lifestyle, it, it it honestly surprised me. I have to say, like, it seems like there's this dichotomy between you have this optimized life growing up. Like Jonathan mentioned, you tried to optimize your tips on your paper route, and then you worked your way up to be, you know, you said, I want to be the best dishwasher. And then you ultimately became a very important employee. So, I mean, clearly you were dialed in. You had this culture where, and this community where people were talking about money, but yet you're spending it all. Right. Like that, that just seems surprising to me. Do you have any recollection as, as to like where that came from? So if you think back, you're an immigrant kid growing up in America in a whole different culture than you're used to. I think it was more so we didn't know how to fit in. It's not like today when, when I grew up, everyone was, you're thinking about the race riots of the late sixties, segregation of schools, all of this stuff was going on and there weren't very many Indian in America. So literally the culture was you were either white or black and I wasn't either. And we just didn't know how to fit in. So I think a big part of it was creating significance like, Hey, look at me. I'm rich. I'm important. And I think that's where that came from. And that's something that later in life I really had to overcome. And that was a big turning point for me. And it's interesting, Rocky, you know, it sounds to me that you and your family benefited greatly from the, you know, quote unquote American dream. But it also sounds like to some degree you got the half of it right, which is opportunity. But at least through college, the the other half of that being, well, 
I need to spend everything I make. I mean, that's just, that's just what you do. And it, it's interesting to, to contemplate that because if you look at where you are now, obviously to reach this millionaire next door status, that, that had to change. You, you have to save some portion of your income. And based on your current mentality, that doesn't seem like that's where you're headed. It's a mindset thing. I spend what I have because that's just what you do. But something had to shift. We're, I think we're both interested in what that inflection point was. So I think it's twofold. My parents always taught us to save. So I always knew that I had to save. And we were always taught to negotiate everything. So we would always optimize our spending. I think it was more just a young kid with money to burn and money coming in faster than it was going out. It just was up until I hit that first real job. It was just like, enjoy life, have fun. You're a college student, you're a kid, whatever. Once I got my job, I got my first job. And the first thing I did was set up all these automated savings plans. My dad turned over to me. I had a T. Rowe Rowe Price brokerage account, and it didn't have much money in it, a couple hundred bucks, but it was set up and ready. So I get my first job and I just signed up for everything. You have a credit union. Okay. I'll put 25 in the credit union. I can buy company stock. Okay. I'll put, you know, some 1% in the company stock. You have a 401k. Okay. I'll put the 6% in the 401k. And then T Rowe price back then had automated savings. So I said, okay, once it hits my checking account, I'm going to put money into T Rowe price. They're going to sweep it automatically from my paycheck. So I had set up all of these automated savings systems immediately upon my first job. And then I continued to live life kind of like I was before. I was making more money than I knew what to do with. Within a probably a year out of college, I was making more money than I knew what to do with. I was living at home, so I had zero rent. I was helping out with the house expenses. I was spending like crazy. And then what happened is I started to get in debt. So I started to buy things and that started to have monthly obligations. So even though I optimized and bought a relatively cheap car with a low car payment, and then you know you want to get certain services like the cable bill, and back then we had beepers and all of these little things, and I would see something, I'm like, oh, it's only 25 bucks a month. Sure, I'll get that. And I think within about a year, year and a half of doing that, I started to realize, whoa, what happened to all this free cash flow I had and the ability to go buy things whenever I wanted? And I started to realize, hey, all these little obligations add up. And so at that point, I started to say, I am not going to get into monthly debt obligations. Let me do my best to pay off the car loan early. Let me get rid of all my monthly obligations so I have the freedom to spend what I have but stay within my limits. So I think that's probably where the mindset shift kind of happened. As I started paying off debt, I would start to split that with myself. So I pay off the $200 a month car loan. I go, okay, I can add $100 to my automated savings now and I can spend $100 more a month, but don't go into debt. Don't put yourself into obligations you can't handle. Rocky, this again is fascinating to me because it's that dichotomy, right? Like you had this amazing system set up to pay yourself first, but then you still went into debt. That's incredible to me that you were so smart on the one hand, and then yet you did allow this this lavish lifestyle to just kind of creep. But was there a particular point in time, like 
X number of dollars of debt, or you just woke up one day and said, I can't do this anymore. Like, was there an actual day? Because there are people out there undoubtedly listening to this who are in a similar situation and maybe they're just, it's unconscious. They don't even realize it. What was that awakening point for you? I don't remember a specific day. What I remember is, hey, I have all these monthly obligations and they're cutting into my lifestyle that doesn't allow me to enjoy what I want to enjoy because I'm stuck with all these bills that somehow just ballooned and took over my spending. I think that was it. It was like, hey, where's my leftover money to enjoy life and have fun? It's all locked up. And I, I had an ironclad thing. I'm not going to mess with my automated savings. I guess that's one habit I have. It's like when I start doing something, I don't mess with it. So I wasn't going to mess with the automated savings to pay off the debt. The automated savings is staying. I know. And that was a fear-based thing. And we, we can talk about that in a second. I just, I realized that all of these monthly obligations were crushing me. And it was like, something has to change or it's going to snowball and get worse. Yeah, you can definitely get to the point where you see that this is headed in the wrong direction. And if I don't take action on this now, it's going to be very, very hard to come back from this. So I totally get that. But you made this statement, which was interesting. And I'm wondering if it was just a matter of perspective, but I was making money hand over fist, or I had money coming in faster than I knew what to do with it. And one, that sounds like a wonderful problem to have. I'm sure there's many people that would love to have that problem. And then two, more specifically, what were you doing? I mean, this is your first job out of college. Many people don't say that. Many people my age come out of college and they're underwhelmed by that first job offer. What, what line of work did you end up getting into for that first job? So my first job was selling office equipment. It was not a high paying job, but it had high commissions. My base salary for the first year was peanuts. And you also have to realize I'm living at home. So I had no expenses. I bought a car, but I bought a brand new car and I made sure that I wasn't paying a lot for it. So my fixed expenses were pretty low. Within about a year of working at this job, my sales really started to increase. So very quickly, my income started to go up because of the fact that my income was just skyrocketing quickly and I got a promotion and I got bigger accounts. I was doing well. And I think part of the problem though with that was that I didn't even know what well was. You're still a young kid. You're making money. You have no expenses. You just don't even know what you don't know on the upside and what life is really going to take as far as spending goes. You know, up to this point, it's a guy that kind of has figured out the one strategy, which is hustle, you know, work hard. But it's almost like without these systems in place, there hasn't been a whole lot of planning going into this. It doesn't sound like you're looking to the future. You're thinking about, you know, this ultimate goal. It's kind of, to be honest with you, it kind of reminds you're kind of drifting. Oh, I think that's a good idea. The HR department tells me I should probably do my employee match. At what point did you feel like you started to have a plan, a strategy? So I think I always had a plan. The plan was a, I want to be a millionaire. So I would just run calculators. How much do I have to save to become a millionaire by the time I'm, and I, I probably did different ages, you know, by the time I'm 35 or 40 or 50. And I would constantly run the calculators to see how to do that. And I would constantly be trying to figure out how to buy stocks and make money. And so this is where I made a ton of mistakes because I was constantly chasing returns I was constantly trying to figure out how am I going to make this money grow? And more often than not, 
my money wasn't growing. It was going down because of those mistakes I was making. But in the back of the, my mind, I always had the, the desire and the goal that I'm going to be a millionaire. And that's what I want. But I don't think I ever had the goal to say, oh, do it as fast as possible. Because back then, no one ever talked about BFI at 35. And the fact that you would do that, I think it was more of a, a longer term goal for me. But one of the other fears I had is watching people go through recessions. And I was a weird kid who read the Wall Street Journal in high school. You would hear these stories of people who were in their early 50s and the recession hits and their whole life blows up. They lose their house. They lose their job. And they've, they've built up this massive wealth and this great American dream. And it all fell apart. And so in the back of my mind, I was always like, I am never going to be 50 and have my dream fall apart because that is the scariest thing in the world to me. So I think that's what my why was that just kept me saving and saving and saving. And my original goal was 1 million. As time went on, inflation hits, and then my goal became 2 million. And even that number has grown because you just want that safety margin. I don't want to be in a point where something outside of my control hits and it blows up my life. And I'm sitting here living a nice life. And now I have to take 10 steps backward. It, there's a lot of fear there around that for me. So Rocky, you're describing essentially increasing your phi number, right? Even if you weren't conceptualizing it as that at the time, but talk me through like how that actually worked. So you have this nebulous 1 million, right? Then it turned into two and you're saying it's, it's now beyond that. And there's this interplay of fear, which I know you said you wanted to allude to later, which I'd be curious about hearing now, but talk me through how this process occurs. Do you sit down, maybe not back then in the, I'm assuming the nineties, but like now, do you sit down and assess what your phi number is based on some interplay of, of fear and current conditions? Like talk me through how you figure that out. So I think the original goal was to become a millionaire. As that became closer to happening, probably in the late 90s, I used to listen to a guy on the radio. His name was Bob Brinker. And Bob Brinker had always said, hey, if you have $2 million, you hit critical mass, you can do anything you want with your life. That's the critical mass number. I'm like, okay, I'm going to hit the critical mass number, $2 million. And that was my goal. Now, I hadn't hit the $2 million mark by this point when I was listening to him. It just was the goal. And so that's how that kind of goal came about. Later in life, as I got closer to that number and I started realizing the math and, and you have to realize though, the world has changed in the sense that back then, when you put money in the bank, you actually got something called interest <laughs> today. You don't get interest. So I watched interest rates go from 18% to 1%, which dramatically changes the equation. And so I think what has happened now is I understand and I've learned much more about the fact that, hey, there's this 4% rule of withdrawal. So if I do have $2 million, that gives me $80,000 a year that I can live off of. And as we've gone through life, my wife and I, our incomes have increased dramatically. We still live way below our means, but I think we've gotten used to a lifestyle that's probably closer to fat fire. And so we do want some nice things. We can enjoy some nice things. We don't mind doing the work that we do. My wife absolutely loves her job. I think she's crazy. She's an accountant. But hey, that's 
that's her choice. So I think <laughs> our lifestyle. <laughs> Brad. <laughs> I agree. I'm being silent on purpose here. <laughs> well, and I know you're, she's a CPA. She works for the big four. Like, you know what kind of lifestyle it is, but she's wanted to be this since she was five years old. This is what her dream is. So if that's your dream, go do it. Let's enjoy life. And there is a balance there. Rocky, it, this is fascinating to me because I want to, I want to go back to, Hey, I think I want to be a millionaire, but I think to get a little bit more, if I can use the word granular with this, like, it's great to say, I want to be a millionaire. I think all of us are very interested in what path you actually chose. Did you just sell a ton of office furniture? What levers are you pulling that allow us to create enough of a savings vehicle to even with, in some cases in your, and as you admitted, negative returns to get to a million or multi-million dollar net worth? So a couple different things. Our income when we were younger was good. It wasn't phenomenal. But what we did was we kept our spending very low. So I didn't understand the terminology back then, but what we had was a big gap between earnings and spending. And so that savings rate was pretty high. And because I started saving when I was 21, it's naturally going to compound even if you do the stupid things I did, it works. And so that's, I think, why that occurred is that I always spent a lot less than I earned. And I always made sure that there was a ton of margin there. And then as our incomes have increased, we've just consistently increased that margin. And we paid, like, we paid off our house quickly. So I bought our house in 1999. Interest rates when I bought my house were 8%. It was scary back then making that big purchase. I'm like, what if one of us loses our job? What happens in, in all those types of things? But then over time, we got the benefit of interest rates going from 8% down to literally below three. I, I think I refinanced my house five times. And every time I refinanced it, I went to a shorter and shorter term. Our last term was 10 years. And then finally, we just stroke a check and paid it off. So if you think about it, if I don't have a mortgage and I haven't had a mortgage for a long time now, I have tons of free cash flow and I'm saving it all. And so that's what's created the wealth is that spread. We stopped our lifestyle creep. And although it still does go up, it's still way below where we should be for spending compared to what other people with our income do. This story has a little bit to do with multi-generational wealth building, because as you pointed out in your parents' case, they had to start over twice and you saw it work for them. And then you were able to lean on that and achieve incredible financial success over this 20 or 30 year investing window that you've had, but you have two kids. And in your kid's case, I know that you're taking all of the knowledge that your parents gleaned and what they passed on to you. And you've been very intentional with looking at some of what you did well and some of your mistakes and helping guide some of their decisions. And I know that both of your kids are making some very interesting choices. And I'd love to talk just for a few minutes about what that process has looked like when you're steering your kids and you're trying to help guide them to a more efficient, productive path. What are those conversations looking like? So we knew by the time we had kids, we were a little bit later. I think I was almost 35 when my first child was born. We already knew we had financial success. Like we were well on this path to being well off. We had good jobs, good income, good savings. Everything was cranking along. Watching what I saw as my parents grew up, there was a trend that occurred. The first generation came, they busted their butt, 
they worked hard. The second generation had that strong foundation and excelled massively. That generation wanted the next generation not to struggle. And so they spoiled them. And that third generation turned out horribly. My kids are that third generation. I did not want them to end up horribly. I don't want to be here in my 60s with my kids living in my basement. And so there is this massive struggle between we're living a nice lifestyle, but they have to learn how to live life without all of this big American dream. You have to have all of this stuff. And it is a struggle. And we were extremely intentional. I mean, the first time my kids were on an airplane, they flew first class. And how do you balance this out? And so from the time my kids were very little, like literally at about four years old, we started having conversations about money. We started having conversations about things being expensive. And what I literally did, I think when they started at five years old, we handed them an allowance. I think I would do things a little differently now, learning what I've learned We didn't even have them do chores for their allowance. And the reason why is because as I looked around, every obstacle you put between the kid and money created money issues. So if you're fighting with your kids over, you didn't brush your teeth, you can't have money. It was interfering in the conversations. So we literally just handed them the $5 and I said, here are the rules. $2 goes to savings. You can touch this money. You can't have, it's not going to be for your car. It's not for your college. It's not for your marriage. It's for like way beyond you can ever imagine in your life. You're going to save $2. These $2 you have, you can spend however you want. And then you're going to give away $1. And so every week the money went in their hands and we'd start conversations. We'd go to target. I want this. Great. You have money, buy it. And literally with both my kids, what would happen is, is, they would pick something up and they'd walk around the store and then they put it back because it was now their money. And even a five-year-old knows the difference between your money and their money. They will spend your money like it's never going to end. They will not spend their money because it's theirs. Now, there were a lot of mistakes and there were a lot of conversations. And the conversations were along the lines of, especially with my son, you know, I want Pokemon cards. Okay, we're in Target. Here's a single pack of Pokemon cards. It's $5 and you get whatever, three cards in here. Here's a larger pack of Pokemon cards. This one's $10, but you get eight cards. So it's a better value. But guess what? If we go on eBay and we look for $20, you can get a hundred used Pokemon cards, but you're going to have to wait two weeks for them to arrive. And these types of conversations just occurred from the time they were young all the way through. And they learned how to save and how to spend and how to look for opportunities. I mean, it was as simple as, hey, I want to buy some candy. I'm like, well, we're at Target. It's expensive here. If you wait till we go over to the next place and you buy a pack and you split it with your brother, you can get three times the amount of candy for a little bit more money, what do you want to do? And so they would do that. They, they, they were just watching it. And, and just even the other big thing is like around, cause we're coming into the holiday season. We taught our kids toys go on sale for 75% about 
a week after Christmas. And this is something my dad taught me. I was like, I remember when I was a little kid and he'd be like, you want a Christmas present? You can have this, or you can wait for a week after Christmas and everything is 75% off. You can go buy four times as much. And that was a lesson that I taught my kids. So they would see how they could get so much more by just doing slightly different things. So it wasn't like they were feeling the need to have something. You could still have what you want, but you could get it for a fraction of what everyone else was paying. Yeah. And Rocky, it sounds like you taught them to lead gratification, right? You're describing the Pokemon cards that you could get for a significant bargain if you waited two weeks or 75% off toys if you wait until after the holiday season. That's a huge, huge lesson for your kids. Do you find that they've taken that to heart now as they're they're growing up or are grown? They are. So my kids are now 16 and 18. My daughter's off to college. My son's actually in college as well. And we can chat about that if you want. They do. They don't spend. Like my kids do not spend money because they don't want for things like they used to. My kids also don't buy designer brand labels. They don't care because they realize how much it costs. And I think because of a lot of other things we've done to instill confidence in themselves, they don't feel like they need to have something to be confident. They're just naturally confident. And so they don't, they don't spend money at all. My kids have Roth IRAs. We started them a couple of years ago. So as they, they have earned income, it's like, Hey, we're putting this money away for you. Watch what happens when you put $2,000 in your Roth IRA today. Now look at what it's going to be when you're 65. It's something like a million dollars. This is how you build wealth. This is how things come up. Because we know that when we pass away, we're going to leave our kids a lot of money. And the reality is, is I don't want them to say at that point, wow, we got all this money. I want them to say, gee, that was nice, dad, but we've already built our millions. So thanks. But that's just kind of a nice added bonus for us. Yeah, that's a pretty good position to be in, certainly. Hey, Rocky, you mentioned before when you were talking about the allowance and maybe just lessons for your kids when they were younger that you would do some things differently. And I know it was just kind of like a throwaway comment, but but I suspect you have some some specific items that that maybe you could pass along to the audience. I think people are always looking for those actionable tips, right? So obviously you've done an incredible number of things right with your kids. What are those things that you would have done differently? What I was doing by giving them the allowance was teaching them how to save money and how to spend money. What I wasn't teaching them was how to earn money. And I think what I would have done differently is because we increased their allowance with every year of that they got older. So when they were six, they'd get $6, seven, seven dollars eight, eight dollars I would do more to offer them opportunities and encourage them opportunities to earn money for themselves above and beyond. And I would figure out a way to make it so they felt uncomfortable enough in life that they'd want to earn a little bit more money on their own. And I see that more so with my daughter than with my son, but I would want them to learn how to have that desire to earn more and what I'm looking for is for them to have grit. I'm trying to install that type of mindset in them, that you have to work hard, that it does take effort, and that there are massive rewards for your effort. We've done some of it, but not enough. And Rocky, there's a couple of threads that we can actually tie to your own experience. Because I mean, a lot of what you're teaching your kids is directly based on on your life experience. And so one of the things that I wanted to talk about is 
You mentioned this very specifically. Your kids learned early on that they could get what they wanted for a fraction of what everyone else is paying. But simultaneously, we know that you were able to cash flow college and it's it's very difficult to cash flow college now. Not only has the cost of college dramatically inflated, but just if you were to look at it even in non-inflated dollars, right? If you were to look at it in real dollars, the amount of time that you would have to work in 1975 to cash flow college compared to the amount of time that you would have to work to cash flow it now, it's virtually insurmountable. Uh, and so I'm just curious, like for your kids, you mentioned you have a son that somehow is 16 and in college, which obviously I want to explore. But in your situation, you had to explore college for your daughter first. And I'm curious, what strategies did you guys pursue to make it as cost-effective as possible? So we started looking at colleges and I started to see these price tags. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. College isn't worth this much money. And so first and foremost, be intentional. What is it that you want to do in life? What degree is going to do that for you? And where are we going to get the best deal? So the conversations that I had with my daughter we would start looking at how do you get money for college? One of the things that's crystal clear that we've learned is your grade point and your SAT score drive scholarships from the college directly. So she was able to get high levels of money just from her high grade point average and her high SAT score. So how do you get a high SAT score? Well, when you're in ninth grade, you get an app and every day you do one question on the SAT test so that by the time you're in 11th grade, you've got three years of history of taking this test and it's, you've learned how to take the test and how to get high scores. Wait, 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 wait. I've never heard of this. This is a new thing. It's never been mentioned on this show. What is this app? I don't, it's like, a, it comes from the, the people I think who do the SAT and it's just a daily SAT question. Every day you get a daily SAT question on your phone and you answer the question that and it's amazing. within the app. And so all I'm doing is building a skill, how to take an SAT test because the SAT test drives your scholarship and it's easy. A kid will do one question a day. It's not like we're go to this class and I'm beating you to death to get this done. One question a day gets you success. Can you do one question today? Yes, I can. Yeah, I just Googled that really quickly, and it looks like the app is called Daily Practice for the SAT, and it's published by the College Board, and they're the ones that put out the SAT. So yeah, that sounds like the app, Rocky. So I want to clarify something. You made a wonderful point by highlighting the value and importance of GPA and SATs and giving us an actionable tip to get a great SAT score. That will then allow us to get scholarships from the college. You didn't mention that it was a full ride. And I'm also curious about additional scholarships outside of school. Was she able to get any of those as well? Because there's different types of scholarships. There's needs-based scholarship, and then there's merit scholarships, right? Where GPA and SAT scores would be heavily weighted on merit, not so much for needs. So basically what happened was after we went through this process with my daughter and she started applying for all these outside scholarships and she didn't get them. She didn't even get the presidential ones or the full ride scholarships from the colleges that she wanted to go to. What we were told when she started the search for college, because we started back in like ninth and 10th grade and what ended up happening was not in line. And so she was kind of upset. I'm upset because I'm like, we were told this story and this story did not come to be of her being able to get scholarships and all of this stuff to make her college essentially free. So wait a second. The frame was, and this is what we were told. If you get a high GPA, 
and I don't know what high means. Is it maybe it's more than a three five or a three eight? Maybe it's a four zero. But if you get a high GPA and you crush your SATs, and we have this hack now, you're going to do one question a day and you're going to crush your SATs. Then you're going to get a great deal on college. And you're saying that was the plan that you followed for your daughter, and it just wasn't true. Plus, on top of that, the outside scholarships. Hey, there's all this scholarship money that's you know going unused and you know, create your story and they'll give you all this money. Well, she applied for all these scholarships and she didn't get them. And I think part of the reason is, is a lot of these scholarships are looking at needs based. Well, they look at me and they laugh at me. There's no need for you. And the problem is, and and my daughter knows this clearly, and she's told it to the college and they don't care. My dad has money. I don't, I'm broke. Why are you thinking that he's going to pay for this because he's not. He's told me if you're smart enough to go to college, you're smart enough to pay for it and he'll show me the path. So we assumed there was going to be a lot more money coming and it did not occur. And part of it was because it was, we don't have a need according to the college. And part of it is there's so much more competition for all these scholarships now, it's harder to get them. Rocky, these full merit scholarships that you're talking about, are these at elite schools or are you talking about like the 2000th best school in the country? Like what, what are we, what are we talking about here? So it depends if you're looking at an elite school and you don't have a high income, you pretty much are going to get a full ride scholarship. If you step a tier down below elite schools, each school varies. And that's the other thing you have to do. You have to figure out how does that school give out money and what's important to them because they all have their own unique things that they're looking for. And you need to figure out what that is. And there's actually a great way to do that. It's called the common data set. So if you Google common data set and the name of the college, it will show you how, what they look at, what's important to them, what kind of grade point averages you need and how they give out money. And a lot of colleges will tell you how they give out money. So we went to some colleges and we said, Hey, do you have merit-based aid? And they go, no. And we would leave because they're not going to give us any money. The colleges that she did go to did give merit-based aid. You have to pick a school that fits your need that does. And there's some colleges that if you have that 4.0 and that 1400 SAT, they will give you full ride scholarships. It's a question of, do you want to go there? So you've got to figure it all out. It's not easy. So that's really the issue is that this is a sliding scale, right? You have to make a determination on what works best for your life and what you value, right? That's the kernel of truth that I'm hearing that, that people can take away from this, right? Is you just said your daughter probably, or almost certainly could have gotten a full merit scholarship at many, many schools, but for her, you guys were looking at, at slightly better schools and some of those don't give merit scholarships or you have to be perfect on everything and then some. And and this was my own story back when I was picking colleges. So it's very personal for me too. Like there is that sliding scale. And I think everybody at the end of the day needs to come up with what do they value? Absolutely. And every college values something differently. So you've got to find your fit with your values that match up to their values. We didn't realize how much of a game this was, how much of a numbers game it was, and how much misinformation was kind of out there. And so that's why with my son, we did things totally differently. I was like, okay, these colleges are not learning institutions for the most part. They are businesses. 
and they are playing a prestige game and a business game. And if, and this is just my opinion, because we've gone to some different colleges, we've looked at Ivy League, we've looked at mid-tier, but when you start to talk to people, sure, an Ivy League college is going to propel you a bit forward, but in today's world, it may not be necessary for success and happiness. I went to a state school. My wife went to a state school. We're multimillionaires. Does it, do we have to send our kids to Harvard? No. So what we did with our son, when I realized how much of a game this was, is we said, how do we play this game the fastest, cheapest way as possible? So the first place we stopped at was Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon is $75,000 a year. I said, Hey, do you guys give merit aid? Do you do any of these types of things? Like here's where I'm at. And they just laughed at me. They said, no, this is what it's going to cost you. I'm like, a degree here is not worth $300,000. And son, I am not paying $300,000 even if you get into this school. But what we learned is in Pittsburgh, if you go to University of Pittsburgh and they don't have your class, you can go take a class at Carnegie Mellon at University of Pittsburgh prices. So we went over and we talked to University of Pittsburgh. University of Pittsburgh is $28,000 versus $75,000. So considerably cheaper. Second thing we learned, University of Pittsburgh has a program where they will accept credits from our local community college. So if you go to your local community college and you earn credits there, then you can transfer those into University of Pittsburgh. The next thing we learned is my daughter homeschooled for her last couple of years of high school. And we were thinking about making the same choice with my son. He was going to take a slightly different path, but homeschool. It's like, why don't you just start playing the game and knock out these college credits? Our local community college charges a hundred and a quarter per credit. So my son's a junior in high school taking 16 college credits this semester, and it's costing me a hundred and a quarter of credit. So I think it comes out to $2,000. University of Pittsburgh has already said, we will accept all of these credits. Here are the classes you need to take. And so He's got a two-year head start. His price tag went from twenty-eight thousand to about four, four and a half, five thousand because he's living at home, and it's costing me no different. He gets through faster if he wants to go do his master's at Carnegie Mellon. He can probably get into a program where he doesn't have to pay for his master's. He can just go kind of work through their their systems and get his master's for free in the same amount of time it would have normally taken him to graduate. And because he's at University of Pittsburgh, and if he learns to build relationships at Carnegie Mellon, he's got a better chance of getting in there. And part of the reasons it's a top robotics school, and my kid loves robots, and he builds robots. So he's got the pathway through it. He just has to negotiate, work it out, and do the work. And he can get through this whole thing at the end of the day for a fraction of the cost. Rocky, what I love about your story, and in particular, when you think about it from a multi-generational perspective, what your parents had to go through, essentially starting over twice, what you were able to accomplish and now what your kids are doing. One of the themes or criticisms that I have seen in different write-ups about pursuing you know, this level of financial independence, building wealth for yourself and for your family, is that, well, this all sounds great and dandy when it works, but it's naive to think that bad stuff isn't going to happen. And what strikes me is that bad stuff happened to your family, not once, but twice. And the path was still the same. This is still, this is just what you do. And I think that's true. 
if you just keep showing up and you just keep taking small steps, they compound in all areas of your life. And that's literally what it is. And I think that was a value that was taught to us just kind of growing up because our family left that part of India, relocated to a different part of India, and then they went all over the world. And it was like, you just show up, you start doing, and you just keep going. And yes, is it a straight path to success? Absolutely not. There are bad things that are going to constantly happen, but it isn't that they are or aren't going to happen. What are you going to do when something bad happens? Are you going to give up or are you going to step back up? And I see that a lot with real estate. People, they get involved with real estate. They have one bad deal and then they refuse to do it again. Or, you know, they get involved in the stock market and they lose money and then they refuse to do it again. That's not the answer. You learned a lesson, get back up, try again, and just keep taking those steps because they will compound. If you keep restarting the clock, you keep restarting your compound. And it's very hard to get to that part of the curve where it really starts to turn and go up dramatically. And the only way you're going to get there is to keep stepping up and keep going on that curve. All right. Well, on most shows, that would be the end of the episode. But Rocky, on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Absolutely. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Rocky, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. I love Financial Mentor. It's uh, Todd Tresseter's blog, and I think you have had him on the show in the past. He does a great job of explaining how to build wealth and the different levers, and he makes it clear for me because I, I had a lot of confusion around certain things, and his blog made a lot of that clear for me. He also does the math which is something that people don't seem to do is the actual math behind your numbers game and how it changes based on inflation rates and return rates and all of that type of stuff. And, and I just like the way I I'm a direct person. So I like people who speak to me directly. And so that's probably the one I like most. Awesome. Well, question number two, your favorite article of all time. Now this can be one that you wrote or somebody else's. My favorite article is Stop Stealing Dreams. It's by Seth Godin. What it talks about is that we are not asking the question, what is school for? We didn't talk about this in this episode, but we have always been extremely intentional with education for our kids. Our kids went to a classical education school where you are taught how to think, not what to think. We're in extremely intentional with college. And we talked about the value money of is college worth it. And this blog post, which has got a book and a video and everything else goes behind it says, what is school for? What are you really teaching your kids and why? And I think it's important for every parent to ask that question. Yeah, because it's not to babysit them or just to keep them occupied for a certain period of time. It's it's those formative years are critical. So I think it's a very valuable question to be asking. All right, question number three. 
your biggest life hack? My biggest life hack, I think, is Google Calendar. It runs my life. We do a ton of different things. You know, I coach my kids sports. I'm involved in, in their Boy Scouts and their Girl Scouts. And I've got work and I've got real estate and side businesses and, you know, life itself. And there's a saying in our house, if it's not on daddy's calendar, it doesn't exist. (laughs) So it's like, if you want me to do something, put it on the calendar. And we literally schedule our calendar out a year in advance, if not more, like drop all the stuff on the calendar. Cause if it's on my calendar, it will get done along those lines though. My calendar isn't full. I have margin. I have a lot of margin, but the important things are on the calendar. So they get done. Working out is on the calendar. My appointments are on the calendar. Our vacations and our kids' activities are all there so that we're not running from one place to the next. We can look at the calendar and go, yeah, we already have something that day, so that's not going to work. So it's not about packing the calendar. It's about managing life in the calendar and everyone being on the same page in the family. Yeah, that's fantastic, Rocky. I agree with you using Google calendar. And for me, the combination of Google calendar and Todoist has been, I don't know, revolutionary for my entire life. It's changed everything. It's having it down on paper. I love when you said, if it's not on daddy's calendar, it doesn't exist. That's fantastic. I do not use it quite to the degree that you do, like even putting my workouts on there, but I don't know. Maybe you spurred me on. I'd at least like to try a test of that for a couple of weeks and just see like, so you're literally putting every single thing that you do in life on your Google calendar. Not every single thing. My big have to be there. So if it has to be done at a specific time, it is on the calendar. If it's something that needs to get done, but it doesn't need to get done at a specific time, it's on a to-do list. So that's the separation. If it must be done at a specific time, it must be on the calendar. Well, that's very cool. All right, Rocky, question number four, your biggest financial mistake. In 2008, at the bottom of the market, I panicked and I sold out. I sold out probably half of my stock portfolio. And at this point in 2008, I had, you know, I had crossed the millionaire mark. So watching that drop was tons of fear. And at the bottom, I was just like, I give up, get me out of this mess. I lost a lot of upside gain from that. Now, as we talked about before, I didn't give up. All my automated savings were still buying stocks at low prices. Over time, slowly, I got back into the market, but I lost out on some of the biggest gains. I just didn't see it coming. Like in 2000, I saw the stock market was so high. This is crazy. And I actually sold out before that crash, got back in at the bottom, had a great run up until 08. And I saw real estate was bubbling and it was high, but I didn't expect the real estate bubble to cause a crash in my stock market bubble. All right. Question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. So I think it's to be intentional and think through the outcomes you want in life and why. You know, and for me, I was chasing this American dream because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. But I never asked why. I wasn't intentional. Had I been intentional, I think I could have avoided a lot of mistakes. The other thing is just just keep building those stackable skills that are transferable in life. I think going forward, things are changing faster than ever, but certain skills are important no matter what. So keep 
keep improving yourself, keep making yourself better. And then lastly, I think build and maintain great relationships. You can't do this alone. And it's easier than ever to build relationships. When, you know, when I got out of college, it was a phone book. Like you couldn't find people and it was hard to, to stay in contact. Today, it's easier than ever. And so I think that was one of the big pieces that I didn't do well as a younger person. All right. Now we do have a bonus question for you. What purchase have you made over the last 12 months that has brought the most value to your life? I didn't make this purchase over the last 12 months. I, I bought it a long time ago and I'm not going to replace it, but I have a coffee maker that has a timer and I fill it up at night. And so when I come down in the morning, there is ready to drink coffee. I don't have to sit there and stare at it for a couple minutes or wait. I just come down and there's no friction in my life and it's cheap to make coffee at home. And I've got my first cup of coffee first thing in the morning and my day starts off positive and easy and thrilling and that coffee gets me moving. <laughs> no need to put making coffee on the Google calendar, huh? <laughs> no, it just gets done the night before. <laughs> hey, Rocky, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast to be here. To our audience, if you want to connect with Rocky and with this content, you can find his blog at richersoul.com and his podcast, Richer Soul, anywhere that podcasts are found. You know, for me, Brad, one of the biggest takeaways was that information can survive to the third generation. I think many of us have this fear point, almost this aspirational fear point. Well, if I am, if I can make it to this level of success, I don't want to ruin my kids and I don't know how to avoid that. And I don't think that that is foreordained. That is guaranteed that your grandkids are going to be growing up in golden basements. I don't think that they are doomed to that. But in order to avoid that, in order to have some control over that narrative, conversations and continual improvement have to be a part of the process, the growing up process. Yeah. And some intentionality, right? And Rocky's been very clear about that. He had heard these stories growing up about that third generation, and he did everything that he could to apply some intentionality and to allow his kids to really think through this, right? And he said they talked about money from when they were four years old. So it's always been there. And it doesn't sound like he's stuffing it down their throats, but it's always there. And that is fantastic. And I just loved his answer to the advice you'd give your younger self, where he's basically talking about connection and stackable skills, right? The talent stack, or just trying to improve. That to me was one of the best answers to one of our hot seat questions I've heard, because that's what it's all about. It's what do you have to do to create a successful life? And those are two of the big things. So yeah, really enjoyed this time with Rocky. To our audience, if you got value from today's episode, and if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to choosefi.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to choosefi.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free. And just go to choosefi.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast. 
where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.